one. We are live. Yeah. Well, no, and also getting out there and prepping beforehand, I think, is kind of important these days. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. You don't have a choice. The competition's too good right now. If you're not going to get to Worlds for at least four days ahead of time and get multiple rounds on two different courses, you might as well kiss your chances of making the cut goodbye. Exactly. Yeah. What? But. Well, I mean, that's kind of where we're live. Cody, glad you can join us. So you had me worried there for a second. Calm down. I just had to restart my computer. <laughs> right at three six young children to bed. <laughs> but I think, I don't know. Have you met Josh, Scott? I have not. not okay. So. Yeah, I yeah, don't think we have. Yeah, yeah we've met a couple <laughs> times at uh, the second pass in passing at the tournament. Okay. So yeah. Cool. Yeah. It's just seriously, so many people go in and out of <laughs> everything that we're doing. So. Yeah, one hundred percent. No, Just Josh is down in Eugene, he's, and he's Cody's over. Okay. Cody's over in Maryland. Okay. Yeah, I got it right this time. MD. I am. I am in Maryland. Correct. All right. We've <laughs> only been doing this for over a year, but that's all right. That's fine. <laughs> it's right. Now, Paige, if if we put a map, can you find Maryland on a map? It's over by Washington D.C. Well, yeah, but like, <laughs> oh no, no, out? no! If he was like Blake, <laughs> if it was Blake, I wouldn't be able to point it out. <laughs> That's fair. Public but, education. Right, let's, let's get started, guys. What is up, everyone? We have an amazing episode of Jammers in the Rough for you this week. We have the amazing Scott Withers here with us, but we're joined by our lovely co-host Cody. The absolute worst Waldron, Josh, just jamming it in winters, and of course, myself, Paige. Um, Scott, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm in Waco. It's been warm for the last couple days, and uh, we're getting ready to start start Pro Tour event number two of the year tomorrow. So excited to get it going. I was going to say, uh, how's your body do the, deal with the transition of like cold, like severe cold here in the Northwest to like actually heat? I can play more than 18 holes in a day without wanting to go back to bed. Like, I don't yeah. I mean, we were talking about it last night. Adam and I, Adam Hammonds and I jammed out like an extra, we played around and we jammed out like an extra 12 or 13 holes. And I was just, I was like, it's 70 degrees out. Like I can throw extra shots. And then I woke up this morning. I was like, dang, I threw a bunch of extra shots yesterday. <laughs> but it, it's enjoyable to be outside. Like Oregon sucked this whole winter. It's been brutal. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, then extra extended. cold. Then we hit this extended winter all of a sudden. It's like it started picking up good, kind of like at the tail end of January, early February. Then it was like, second winter, guys. And just. Yeah. Yeah. I know when I, when I went down to Goat Hill, it was that same thing of like 70, hopped out of the car, didn't do my normal stretch. I was like, oh, I feel young again. Ripped a 550-foot shot and then couldn't hit 500 the rest of the tournament. <laughs> it was just like absolutely destroyed. <laughs> Cody's saying internet distance. Yeah, was that oh, like yeah, a yeah. subtle brag? Like, yeah, <laughs> I was just real it was whole 10. It was a downhill one. It was a big downhill <laughs> shot. Yeah, 550 is 550. It doesn't matter if it's like this. <laughs> but no, um, I think, I mean, definitely wanted to thank you for kind of coming out and, uh, you know, talking to us on our podcast. But after your big breakthrough, I think, at Vegas, I definitely wanted to have you on here and see if there's anything that, you know, you wanted to talk about in regards to that. But. I just, I mean, I mean, I can give a recap. Yeah, I was just <laughs> say, where were you day one with like everyone was like talking about the weather, the wind, the cold, and then you just kind of stepped up and showed up in a big way. Yeah, I tend to play pretty well in that course, and that's uh, we'll get to like round three, which was ugly. 
Um, but I've had a lot of success on that, which was the Millennium course this year. It's been the factory store course or whatever. It's changed names a million times. But that course that we played first this year and generally played third in Vegas, I like the course. I've had a bunch of success on it before. Um, there's a couple holes I play safe on. But I got in the clubhouse at eight under, and I was like, that's okay. Like, I played fine, but I don't check – especially in these big events, I don't check scores early, like maybe the third or fourth round if I'm like starting to figure out like what position I'm in or whatever, but I just go play that first round and I got in at eight and I knew it was solid. And then I had a couple, then I looked at my phone, like at the end of the round, cause I turned it on airplane mode and my phone was blowing up and I was like, what? like, what do you mean? I'm not like, I thought I was going to be in like 10 or 15th place or something. And all of a sudden, I guess people struggle with the wind a little more. And I made some putts when it mattered and got in. It was time for the lead. And I was like, uh, I thought I played okay, but it wasn't like anything super crazy. It was just kind of a tough day with the wind. And, you know, it was honestly my day two being able to stay on lead card was probably a better round. I just took a triple on hole like 11 or 12 or whatever. And that kind of like took it from being this really, really good round down to like just a good round, but staying on lead card for two rounds was pretty sweet. Yeah. I was going to say day two when you, uh, Stepped in. I know we talked last week on our podcast about like kind of I'm pretty sure it's probably the first lead card ever where four individuals have brand new sponsorships coming into the <laughs> into the year and everything. But did you like I know with you and James Proctor last year battling it out a lot, did you get a little bit of comfort with him on the card? Or is that a little bit more of like like sometimes when I play with people that I know I get a little too loose and lose a little bit of focus? How was that for you to be able to have that kind of Proctor right there with you? I think we're both pretty professional about like playing and stuff. I don't think losing focus because we're with someone specific is necessarily a concern, but anytime I can play with James, it's like I, you look and you see his name on the list and you're like, okay, this is going to be a fun round or whatever. Yeah. Even if he didn't play great that second round and kind of dropped a little, and then he played good in the third round again and everything. But then I got to play with him in round four too, when we were no longer really like in contention, but anytime that you see James on that card, um, it's a treat. Like he's the ultimate professional. He's really good. He throws a lot of really cool shots to watch too. Mm-hmm. And uh, I can't necessarily emulate all his backhand lines that he takes because he's so good with like mid-range turnovers and stuff. But it yeah. just like there's certain guys that you really like playing with, and James is one of those. Okay. No, definitely. And yeah, I mean, did you want to take us to day three? Sure. Um, <laughs> obviously, one and two are good. Two had that one mistake where I took a triple. You can't take triples. Like, what are you doing? Like, this is the pro tour. You, you don't get to take triples. Um, and then day three, playing lead card, we got the bad end of the weather draw. Like, the real bad end of the weather draw. If you go back and watch Joe Mez, like, the morning groups, it just happened to be a weather system coming in in the afternoon. And we teed off at uh, the worst time possible, basically. Um, and I struggled for like that first 10 holes and then actually played pretty solid coming in on the back nine. I was like three over or something through like 10 or 11 holes and then got back to even. Um, so it was real bad for a little bit. And basically it just, because I kept not making birdies early. And then I had mm-hmm. one, one bogey on a bad drive and then one triple on what was a, not a very good drive. And then an upshot that I actually thought I threw really well in like a 40 mile an hour crosswind and it slid out of bounds. And then I got up onto the green of this new little island area that they created with OB everywhere, which is whatever. Like I'll, I'll leave my opinions of that OB area. <laughs> out. There's a reason there was zero birdies in the first round on that hole. We'll just put it yeah. that way. 
Uh, you saw more. You saw more in round three because there was no wind when a lot of the groups went through early, like dead mm-hmm. calm or a tailwind on it. By the time we got there, it was not that. And then I had like a putt for bogey from 25 feet and the wind was blowing 40 miles an hour. I was like, it was right to left. I'm like, I'm a terrible wind putter. We don't play in the wind. <laughs> I chain it out left and then it rolls to 25 and I got a 25 foot straight headwind putt. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. I can't make this one either. I'm sitting there knowing that before I throw it. I'm just thinking like, God, please go in. This is embarrassing. Like there's cameras, there's a bunch of people watching. You suck. Throw it in. Didn't make that. And then all of a sudden I'm like, oh God, I turned to corns who was caddying for me. I'm like, I should probably start playing good before I miss the cut from <laughs> from lead card. And then played good coming down the stretch or played fine coming down the stretch. And um, just, you know, one of those days where I threw the disc to 40 feet a lot and 40 feet in those weather conditions when the wind's blowing between 15 and 40 miles an hour, you just don't make a whole lot of those putts. And, you know, didn't make any birdies until late, kind of salvaged around late and got in. And, you know, it dropped from, I think I was tied for fourth or I was in solo fourth or something and dropped to like 21st. But it wasn't the end of the world at the end of that round. And then, you know, was able to play a little better on Sunday and climb up a few more spots. Yeah, I was going to say, you were talking about uh, some of that like 40 foot putting. I don't think I've watched a tournament so often where you see so many layups from like a lot of the top level pros in putting from that 35, like really 30 to 40 range, like legit Mm -hmm. layups. Um, And even then, some of those layups weren't well executed either and sometimes led and bled out. And um, how do you, especially like, I feel like that has to be like such a mental overwrite to go into a tournament knowing. You know, you've had the putting reps, you've had the putting success over the years, and it's been proven time and time again and have to kind of take some of that medicine. How do you start to get over that? Well, I think Vegas is a pretty unique situation with the putting. Um, and there's some other courses that we'll get to like later in the year, but Vegas is the one where it's always windy for one. So that makes putting harder. And two, every basket is on a mound or has out of bounds right next to it and it's the only way that they can make those courses hard enough to like challenge the top players so it's just a mental thing of like knowing when you need to go for it and knowing when you need to lay up basically so Mm -hmm. that's like my take on that one is you try to make it um if it's there and if it's not there you don't so (laughs) the boys are back i'll just say he's gonna drive by (laughs) yeah i got more just walking in with his ice cream there's ben yep so well, sorry, yeah, that's, that just... that's the, you're good. That's the, the, the tour life is sharing the Airbnbs with everyone. So yeah, it makes it no, fun. That's, that's definitely, I mean, you got a definitely strong crew with resistant discs. I feel like this year mm-hmm. resistance has been over pretty much all of coverage at this point in time, right? Mm-hmm. Like just in a big way. So what's that been kind of like for kind of being, I think the face of resistance disc and watching some of your teammates kind of, you know, kind of pave that way. Yeah, a lot of unexpected people, I would say, kind of jumped onto the team this year. We didn't know what it was going to look like. And Discraft has had some transition kind of between, like, how Elite Team was going to be handled and everything. And then we basically got, you know, Adam's been with us for a long time with Resistance and was before I was. And then uh, to be able to get Aaron Gossage and Anthony Brella and keep Corey Ellis around and pick up Holland and, you know, just kind of keep everyone else that was around. Like you're going to see the resistance logo on a lot of lead cards because these players are just really good. That's all there is to it. We were just lucky enough to be able to get them on our team essentially for this year. And I mean, you saw Anthony and Adam battle it out of the Memorial. You saw Anthony in it the whole time. And 
you know, we had a couple of us that were lead card in Vegas. So I don't think that's mm-hmm. something that's necessarily going away. We have a, a roster of people with Corey and Aaron and Adam mm-hmm. and Anthony and myself and then Holland on the FBO side that, you know, we want to be in contention every week. And it's something that I think is, is realistic, maybe not for every one of us to be in contention every week, but you're going to see someone have a good week each time. Yeah. That's, that's a solid group. You know, mm-hmm. everyone plays Super well talented. on that team. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think there, there's this idea in individual sports that that team mechanic kind of gets flushed away. And I feel like people need to give more credit to that team mechanic, right? When you had Nate Sixton and Paul Macbeth being able to tour around together, that little bit of team camaraderie that would help them elevate to the next tournament. And I think team resistance definitely proven to be one of the stronger ones right now. And having some of that, like kind of carry through the tournaments, know where to look, know who to talk to, when to, who to grab ice cream with. I feel like all those little things start to add up because you yeah. see – like even like Gannon Burr and his like little crew with like Alden Harris, Babcock. Mm-hmm. Um, I think even Cole gets with them from time to time and seeing how that translates to an overall bigger picture. I think it's just something that's important that people forget. Yeah. It, I mean, it, and it helps to push each other, right? It gives you people to practice with. You don't have to like guess where your practice rounds are going to come from. We get to kind of train with the same group when we're out on the road all the time. And it, you know, it just kind of makes things easier. Mm-hmm. No, definitely. So I know we talked a little bit about the bag switch, but um, you switched off from like this craft this year mm-hmm. and got picked up by Clash. And I know Clash keeps a very like loose, you know, uh, requirements around the molds that need to be. And they're at least based off of like what I've seen with like some of the interviews and podcasts of um, the owner and everything. So with kind of having that open bag was there any discs you were drawn to were you just like let me go grab my old stuff or were you like let me try to like explore some of this newer stuff uh so it's a combination um and that's that's the beautiful thing about an open bag and the stance that clash has taken with players is they want to make discs for us that we want to throw because they're that good they don't want to require us to throw only their product and i mean for what it's worth right now clash has 12 discs out and you know some of them are catered towards like amateur players some are catered towards professional players so i definitely have a few molds in my bag that i can show in a second but for me it was keeping a few of those disc discs that i was so good with in the last couple years in the bag going back to some of the stuff that i was throwing before that and then you know incorporating a few new things in also and then making sure that i can supplement all that with a the, the few clash molds that are go-tos for me which out here um i mean i've got you've seen any of my social media stuff you know I'm throwing cookie for fairway drivers. It's like a stable seven speed disc. So think keyboard ish, maybe a little more finish. Um, and then this is probably the best mid range I've thrown in a long time. Um, it's very, very similar to a buzz. fits pretty well in my hand. Um, the berry. And then basically like my utility disc right now, the pepper and no one, these are like a machete or like a max, <laughs> so to say, like they're, you can't even really tell on this video, but they're super flat and um, like hole one at Waco. If you're watching the coverage this weekend, you see everyone throws Spikeisers to it. Like this disc just up and knife straight down. That kind so. of like pseudo grenade shot that's coming out now where it's like, just yeah, so overstably throw, throw, throw it up so. and just. <laughs> yeah, All it right. hurts my hand every time I try to throw that. So I just grab the, something yeah, that's what stupid I... overstable and throw it backhand. <laughs> That's exactly, that's exactly what I do. I found out like this uh, with TSA, the Omen, like for whatever reason, it's not necessarily the stability, but how it cuts to the air just makes it so effortless to recreate that grenade shot without having to mm-hmm. tear my thumb off. 
I, I don't know how people do it. I watch it and then I try it and it hurts my hand and I don't want to try it anymore. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> throw the Spikeizer instead. Like, I don't right. Know. I can throw right. them or if I need to, but I definitely am not trying to throw grenades. I don't even know well, where they go. If you told me they go right or left, I couldn't tell you which direction. Well, that's where like I feel them. like the Northwest does a lot of shot shaping, but our trees are so big, thrown over them doesn't like cross a lot of people's minds. No, it doesn't exist. You're not going no. over our trees in Kevin, most right? situations. to differ. He's Kevin not going over a grenade over anything. That's not true. <laughs> I've seen him throw some crazy ones. I was like, gonna say there's there's some of our trees. Like I brought a buddy from uh I think Texas. He came up here. He was like, Oh, what trees are these? I was like, Oh, they're pines and cedars. Like, no, nah, they're not cedars. Cedars aren't that tall. I'm like, no, that one right there is a cedar. <laughs> like, I'm pretty sure yeah. cedars are giant here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you're not going over our trees, but that's you know. So I've never developed a grenade shot. I've always just went like Thumber over the top or Spike Eyes or whatever. So yeah, so exactly. we're using that for, but just kind of be able to build a bag from things that you knew, new things that every company has really good stuff of. And then the plastics, because I really do like, like the plastic feels incredible. And I, I don't think I would have made the switch if I didn't have, like, if I knew that the quality of the disc wasn't good enough, it wasn't just a switch to go over bag. Like it was a switch because I actually like the things that I'm throwing that are from the clash lineup. And when people start to get their hands on them, they're going to feel the same way. Yeah. Their plastic well, is uh... very incredible. Like mm-hmm. I'm, I'm holding a peach right here. I bag one of those and okay. I didn't realize they had 12 molds. I I'm actually yeah. kind of shocked. Hmm. Yeah. So is there going to be a 13th mold, a Scott Withers mold coming out soon? There should be. I was told we're having eight new molds this year. Uh, and I think that's public knowledge. If not, oops. Um, <laughs> I think that was the goal was to get like eight more out this year is what they said. Now, I don't know what the time frame is to that. Um, but one of the things that Clash can do is their process of making a new mold of disc is like a week. Like they do it in house, which is super cool because a lot of places will have to like outsource to get mm-hmm. uh, the, the plates made or whatever to be able to mold the discs. Well, Clash can do everything in house. So like when Eric Oakley was working on his spice that he has out, it was something he said he had like within a month or something, he had like three or four different test versions of it because he would get them, send them back and say, Hey, this isn't quite right. Like change this just a little bit. And they would do it and they would send him another one. So the turnaround, so like trying to introduce eight molds in a year would not surprise me at all with them because they've already been in contact with us. I'm like, Hey, what do you guys want? Like, what do you need? What are we missing? Um, they really do want to make discs for us to throw and not just like, you know, they're taking the feedback like that yeah. James and Eric and Cupcake and all of us are giving them and they're running with it. So it wouldn't surprise me at all to see Aiden Molds come out this year, but I don't really know what the time frame is on that. And I don't really know like who's going to get what, so to say, name-wise, if any of us are going to get anything, if they're all just going to be Clash branded. there had been a lot of ideas thrown out, but we haven't really like put pen to paper on anything yet. Any glow, you think? Yes, and but I don't know how close it is. There is glow popcorns, and that might be the only one I've seen. Glow cookies. I have a couple glow cookies as a fairway driver that were sent to me like to test, but I think they came in mystery boxes. And then the glow popcorn. Popcorn's like they're dead straight throwing putter. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those two are out in glow, and they glow pretty well. Uh, I would say like seven, eight out of 10 in terms of the glow. They're not that crazy like MVP glow where everyone just loves it or whatever, or the old cast of glow from a couple years ago, but they're good. Like I don't play glow golf. 
So I don't know, but I know that people like the feeling of the plastic. I don't, when it gets dark outside, I just stop and go inside. I will say, too, we had a random question from one of our users, uh, Jerry. So she wrote, have you ever played in Canada? And funny enough, I know this little fact about, is it three-time winner? I guess I don't know if I'm questioning it, but three-time I don't know DC. how many times I've went up there. Uh, yeah. Yeah, maybe three. Uh, yeah, so I have played in Canada, played in British Columbia, the BC Open a few times. Uh, we're lucky that it's not really that far from where we live. Um, it's like a six-hour drive from my house to get up there, but it's a really cool A-tier run by a couple guys that I like a lot. Um, and, yeah, I really – Raptors Knoll is like one of my top five or ten courses. Raptors is such a cool property, uh, and it's, it's like weird to say that it's even in Canada, but it's like ten minutes over the border um so you spend just as much time sitting at the border sometimes waiting to get in or out as you do like driving anywhere within the it's like Aberdeen uh, Langley area to get from course to course or whatever but yeah I've played the BC Open a few times as an eighth year and I, I'm still undefeated in Canada so I'm gonna try to keep that up so hey, I didn't know that <laughs> man yeah subtle, yeah, subtle brag yeah, in, yeah outside <laughs> of the U.S. you hear that Jerry over the border. <laughs> Are you going to end up taking that unbeaten streak to the new, uh, what is it, the Dismania run tournament up there this year? That's all uh, part of the Pro Tour? Is that like later in the season one? I, don't I think it's know. later oh, in the season, that's yeah. way East Coast, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, probably not. I okay. Silver Series, I'm playing like most of the Elite Series stuff and the West Coast Silver Series stuff. But I'm also trying to, like, stay relevant in our local scene a little more because I do run a lot of tournaments and just try to be, like, active in what we have going on. Plus, you know, try to be home as much as I can while doing this. So, yeah, Yeah. let's talk about that, like, work-life tournament director balance that you have come in. I know when I first came into the scene, this is, like, maybe four and a half, five years ago at this point, um, maybe four. Anyways. I was drawn to you for probably not your disc golf accolades, but more or less the director of the Boys and Girls Club story and finding time for that because I've worked youth programming for the last 10 years. The last three years I was working at an epidemiology center, but now I'm a youth program manager at a nonprofit. And so like for me, I was kind of already a fan of you because I'm like, oh, here's somebody that's doing it, right? Like not only mm-hmm. are they continuing to work with youth, but they're proving that they can be successful while working with youth. And so... I wanted to kind of shed a light on that because I think one, that's such a unique, you know, aspect of it, but how do you start to figure out that balance? And um, all of this is obviously rumor, but rumor is you stepped away from that to focus more on disc golf and touring, which I think has elevated the tournament like scene, which Mm -hmm. I think you're probably argumentatively one of the top, if not the top tournament director in Oregon at this point, which it'd be very hard pressed to not say or figure out who's better than you at this point. But you brought the Oregon series in, which is definitely needed to highlight. So I know I'm kind of getting rambly, but do you want to talk uh, about some of that balance and what you've been doing? Yeah, I'll try to break that down into a couple parts. Um, I'm going to, I'll start with uh, what I was doing before the full-time disc golf and working with youth and everything. So I was um, basically like right out of high school, I got hired to work at a boys and girls club. I had done some officiating 
our sports and stuff through high school. Like a lot of us did get yelled at by flag football dads, whatever. (laughs) Um, The power trips. Oh, basketball. (laughs) Fifth grade girls basketball is the worst. Fourth and fifth grade girls. I I was coaching some wrestling and refing some wrestling, and there's some chairs flying (laughs) at some of my calls. (laughs) Yeah, I definitely at 19 years old or 17 years old had to stop some games and be like, look. This game is paused until you're out of the gym so we can continue. And, of course, you're not that intimidating at 17 years no, old. No, exactly. You're 17 years old. They're like, you know, I'm just trying to ref here, guys. I'm doing my community service hours. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, I'm getting paid minimum wage, which at that point was probably 7 bucks an hour yep. or something. Like, just stop yelling at me. I'm doing the best I can. <laughs> Whatever. Um, so I ended up staying with Boys and Girls Clubs, went to college, that kind of stuff. Um, like we all did, dropped out of college the first time only dropped out once um and then just worked at a club full-time doing after school programming stuff athletic stuff and this was in coos bay at a small town in the oregon coast and loved the job loved like what you got to do every day after school like the impact that you could make and just kind of working specifically like the middle and high school groups and trying to lead them onto secondary education trying to make sure like the life lessons that they needed to learn could be learned in a productive way and you know it was just a good organization to work for. Well, I made the decision in 2014 that like I couldn't travel and play disc golf off of the coast because it was starting to be something that I was serious in. I was starting to get a little better. Um, and when you're two hours from any freeway and essentially four and a half hours from any major airport, like it was just not possible. So I moved up to where I'm currently living in Albany, which is like an hour south of Portland. Um, and I got a job with an organization that at the time I went back to school in 2014. So I was doing online college to get my, finish my teaching degree up and was going, um, was working at the boys and girls club up there. Cause I knew a couple of people. I just made a phone call. I was like, Hey, I'm moving up there. Do you guys have any openings? And it happened to work out. And then disc golf got serious at the same time. So was there for, from 2014 until February of 2022. And I still like go volunteer, on a couple of different committees there because I really believe in what that program stands for and the things that they're doing for like the kids in the community um, throughout your school program, through athletics, through just other leadership and dental programs and stuff that this organization has going. Um, but I basically was given the opportunity to step away from the nonprofit world and step into the full-time disc golf world. And for me, it was one of those things where it was like, I was 35 and now 36. I was like, if I don't do it now, I'm not going to do it. Like I'm going to eventually get aged out of being able to be competitive and you can't start at 40. Like this was my opportunity to do it. COVID really helped players. I will say like sponsorship wise and just money in the game wise. And it made it where it was doable for a lot of us to go on the road and to get hooked up with resistance and the opportunities that they've been able to provide for me. Um, just kind of working with and for them at the same time as, you know, trying to be a player. You talked about like some of the tournaments that we're running at this point. Um, a lot of them were ones that I brought over from running them by myself or with my buddy, Zach Jones, who's an incredible tournament director um, and will be running the North Emco Invitational A tier this year, theoretically um, by himself, even though I'm doing a lot of it behind the scenes, but that way I can still play in it. Um, and then now Jeff and I have kind of just taken those things to the next step, including like silver series events a couple years ago and another one this year for the pro tour that we're running a tiers, you know, big B tiers, whatever. And just trying to keep things moving in a professional way in the Northwest where we can set that standard, like, Hey, these, this is the bar, like be better than us, please. Like, please be better than us. Cause I want to play in those events. 
Um, but like set some expectations, like, you know, do it right tournament directors and make sure that, you know, we're all raising the bar for our region. No, definitely. And that's, I mean, definitely what I, I noticed last year, like quite a bit with like the tournaments of like, now I have something to grind. Now I have something like, because not yet, not everyone's able to do the full, full-time pro tour, you know, or even like the Stokely tour was like the A tiers and silver tier or series. Mm-hmm. But like sometimes having that local tournament where you can grind, like I was like MA1 last year and being able to kind of have something to actually battle for, add a little bit of validity to the grind. And it's not just like one event mattering. It's this whole entire series and the camaraderie that came from it, because then you're seeing everybody. I think that's such an important aspect for some of that, because especially with here, like in Oregon, where we have such a unique, diverse style of golf, from out the season because we had we started the season with the golf course and towards the end we ended it in like a big open water style course and you had literally everything in between um that you can imagine disc golf wise and it's just like that is something worth highlighting and something worth kind of like shepherding i guess so yeah when you you're talking quite a bit about the Oregon series and like the way it was run last year and it's very similar this year we're just need to get some stuff out on it which we're working <laughs> on um <laughs> But we tried to pick events that were premier events for the region and also ones that were at a variety of places. So you don't see any courses doubled up. You see tournament directors who get one or two of these Oregon series events to run, but they need to be on board with what we're doing. Like it's a couple bucks of everyone's entry for different divisions has to come out to like do some overall pay it at the end of the season and that kind of stuff. But we wanted to pick the premier events that were already moving the bar forward um, and ones that were at courses that deserve to have like an overall series feel to it and try to like diversify the region of um, like hit in each pocket, hit Portland a couple times that like the Salem, Albany area, hit Eugene, hit Roseburg, hit Bend, whatever, like all around the state just to make the series. And there was a lot of thought and discussion that went into like what tournaments we were going to invite to do it. Well, I mean, to our listeners, you hit it, you heard it here first. Midway through the season, but the Oregon series is happening. No, yeah. no, it is. It's, we just need to get a graphic out because we were waiting on a couple date changes for tournament directors, and uh, now we have those. So now our graphics guy has all the information, and we're just kind of waiting to get it out. Standing M Open was the first one. Buxton Wood Spring Celebration is the second one if you're located here in the Northwest, um, and that is at the end of the month. So I will actually be back with that, which is nice. No, oh, awesome. Um, we do have like just on the tournament conversation. So another question kind of wrote in, um, what makes a tournament successful in your eyes? What's the one thing that you think makes a tournament stand out for athletes? Um, organization with tournament directors, having a schedule posted, following the schedule, being clear in communication beforehand in the event, just so players know what they're getting, be transparent with how much money comes in, where the money's going, well, you know, just, organization and having everything planned out communicating that with players like even if the course isn't top notch if the tournament team is organized and they know like hey it's going to be hot out we need to have water on the course it's going to you know these are some of the things that we could face like whatever it is just being prepared for the different situations and being organized as tournament directors and then that communication with the players even if the course isn't like the perfect thing in the world it goes a long way when you communicate with the players and you're organized and you make sure that like you stick to the schedule and stuff and that's my main ask and then when you get off of like the local scene into bigger tournaments eight years pro tour and that kind of stuff um just being able to provide that player experience the courses do matter when we get out on the road and are playing the biggest events um you can see laundry boy jeff back there um 
he's been on the road for a couple of weeks. He probably needs to do some laundry. Um, but yeah, just, you know, setting that bar in the pro tour has done a really good job of having expectations and making sure that each week essentially looks the same for us as players and we know what to expect. And it just goes back to like the organization thing. So I think for me, that's the biggest, my biggest like takeaway as a player is be organized and communicate with us. And that's all we can ask for. Yeah, because I will say, like, the organizational aspect of it, questions kill tournaments, right? When you have people like, well, where's this? Where's that? What's going on here? What's going on there? Because it's like, even if you don't think about it, somebody's going to find that one place that isn't marked out of bounds. Or somebody's going to find that one thing that you didn't write. And the more you can limit those those, those chances, I think the better it goes. Because the moment that leaks out just a little bit, it gets tore, tore to shreds. <laughs> and if you think someone won't throw a disc, somewhere that you intend to be out of bounds you're wrong if you don't mark it they're gonna throw it there someone will and then you're not gonna know how to play it like i don't care if it's 100 feet past the basket or it's 200 feet right of a basket like if it's an intended out of bounds area take the time to mark it because someone's gonna find it and then you're gonna have a headache to deal with at lunchtime so it's true like someone's gonna spray one you've been a teacher i can tell (laughs) someone's gonna do something that it's just like yeah, 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 be organized with it. <laughs> well, let's uh, take a step back a little bit towards uh, Vegas. There was a couple mishaps that happened, but we wanted to get kind of a pro take on it um, in regards to like a lot of disc hitting spectators or staff. Um, what's your kind of take on some of that situations? And do you happen to have anything? And it, we don't just mean like the Barella smack too. Like no, there's, yeah, there's yeah. a there's that's happening a lot. Like more, mm-hmm. you go to Euro Open and you see fans getting like blindsided on the galleries. Like I, I just like for me, like I know we want the galleries present, but those discs are coming out seventy miles per hour, eighty miles per hour, and they're not flat nose blunt edges. They're sharp. <laughs> no, specifically, like my take on it is we want spectators. That's that's that like we need galleries we need spectators to move the sport forward they just need to stay out of bounds um Mm -hmm. especially in vegas essentially that's a wide open property so on 90 percent of the holes they can stay out of bounds if you hit a spectator that's out of bounds to me it's a little different story the anthony thing where he hit a volunteer that essentially was in the middle of his fairway and then it knocked it into the bunker like that's a different story i'm sure that guy feels terrible but i mean my take's going to be the same as every other player's on it like that's unacceptable basically like it i'm not saying it cost him the tournament specifically but it had a large part in him not being able to be in position to come back uh because i don't off the top of my head i don't know what he took on that hole if he took a four or a five but where that drive was going he was taking a three so yeah and he was only like one or two back at the time so it changes the whole dynamic of everything that's a freak situation that i'm like i know that guy probably feels awful about and It's not like a personal attack on anybody, but don't be in that position to get hit inbounds, basically. Uh, If we watch golf, right? I mean, I'm a huge golf fan. I grew up playing golf, started playing in college for a little bit, realized I was too poor to play golf in college. Um, It's not community college golf. It doesn't pay very much. (laughs) Uh, Too poor for that. Uh, But you see guys, golfers spray shots into the gallery all the time. And, hit people and they go sign a glove and give it to them. They're like, Hey, thanks. Like, sorry, I didn't mean to tag you. <laughs> um, but they're not in the fairways. So, but it's part, it's part of what it is. Like you just kind of got to play, play it, whatever happens in golf. It happens all the time, especially 
what you see on coverage is these groups with thousands of spectators in golf or hundreds of spectators in disc golf for like 90% of the groups, you might have five spectators in disc golf yeah. and like a hundred in golf or something. So that you don't get that interference from fans very often. But my take on it is just kind of like keep spectators in out of bounds areas, if at all possible. And if they're not in out of bounds areas, keep them so far away that they're not going to get hit. And then mm-hmm. basically like if you are a volunteer or a staff and you're in the fairway, like I, I understand that guy was in range, like doing a, either range finding or miles per hour or something with a speed gun, whatever he was doing, like that situation sucks for Anthony because it realistically cost him a pretty good chance at winning the tournament and took all his momentum away from him and kind of. Yeah. As I say, momentum being a huge thing, mental factor, it doesn't take much to completely like derail some of that focus and shift all of that. Like, you know, almost a catalyst, right? A lightning rod of being like, oh, I've been battling up until this point, and then this happens. Like, it's such a tough thing because we see it all the time, right? Like, just that little bit of take somebody out, and it takes them three or four holes. But when you don't have three or four holes to recover, like, that's cost a tournament. And it's that's not immune definitely... to our sport. Like, yeah, watch football, right? Sometimes you try to throw that slant over the middle, and the, you know, the back judge is standing there, and the ball hits a back judge, or a player runs into the back judge, or whatever, like in basketball. You got a fast break, ref can't get out of the way, whatever it is. Like baseball, same thing. You got a runner on seconds, the umpire swings over, ball gets hit in the gap, and, you know, they're part of play. But in our sport, they don't have to be part of play. So just kind of being aware and like where those situations are and stuff. But it's not, you know, galleries getting involved, officials getting involved. It's not new to sports in general. It's just kind of new to our sport because now there's so many more eyes on things. Well, and also when you look at like compared to other sports, like you look at like other throwing sports, you don't have the people that are doing distances in the middle of where they're being thrown at. They're always off to the side and then they'll come with their mm-hmm. flags running, stick them in. But that's not too hard Technology to be like differences. Oh. Yeah, <laughs> right, well, <budget-wise>. yeah. <laughs> but it's like it wouldn't be too hard to be like off the fairway. You've clocked to like already have that distance in mind. So it's like, you know, 200 feet to to the T-pad and then be able to kind of run to a position to clock it and give that in real time or, yeah. you know, it's it's doable, but sometimes I feel like we get so lost in uh, trying to innovate that we forget about like some of those safety precautions, right? Some of those like realistic factors and because um, we even saw volunteers like literally like on a cart path, granted, but the way this fairway plays is it could come into play um, with some like bad shots, but also you know, sometimes people play the skip out of out of bounds. That's a very real shot in disc golf. And so yeah. being like anywhere near some of those things that could happen is, you know, should be thought about, especially where like, I think Vegas does such a good path of here's all of the, you know, here's all of the gallery and where they're going. Here's where the carts going and volunteers go. And they separate them so well and organize that. So like putting that little bit of extra effort, I think goes even further, right. For a great tournament. Yeah. I mean, I could, yeah. I played two rounds on, uh, on lead card in Vegas and there wasn't a single time the spectators were like in our way. And that's yeah. not always the case. Some courses spectators are in the way, but Vegas does a pretty good job about that with actual spectators. And part of it is the golf course and it's just wide open and you can actually funnel them wherever you want them. And it's not like cramming people in the woods. Mm-hmm. So playing on the lead card and having um, you know a lot of the cameras out there filming you, do you ever find that distracting when you're throwing? No, not really. Um, it's more the only time I can kind of get distracted by stuff is putting. If you just have people that aren't standing still behind the basket, like mm-hmm. I'd rather you not be behind the basket at all. But if there's, 
it's going to sound weird, but I'd rather a 50 pack of people directly behind the basket as opposed to two, because if it's two, like get out of the way, but yeah. if it's a whole group and they can't get out of the way, just stand still for me. And that's that cameras and stuff. The disc golf network guys and the Jomez guys are so professional. Like they're, they're not in the way. And if they are in the way, you just be like, Hey, uh, like, I'm not going to throw over your head right there. Like you, we got to realize you're a player first and they are, I don't want to say like profiting off of us, but like they are there to cover what we're doing. So if you do need them to move, you just take your time and say, Hey guys, scoot over just a little bit for me. And they'll always do it. If, I mean, those guys are so professional. They're not in the way. Yeah, mm-hmm, for yeah. sure. It's very rare that they would be. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, so. that responsibility to be on the player and being comfortable to ask those questions. Right. I feel like mm-hmm. there's a lot of times where like that uncomfortability factor comes in and I've seen it where people kind of like, Oh, this guy keeps standing my way, but it's like, at the end of the day, it's your responsibility to be like, Hey, can you just move off to the little bit or mm-hmm. more famously, like I think Simon at PDX open last year where he's visibly frustrated at a fan behind the basket on 11 um, and being able to kind of be like, all right, he took the time and you know, you don't ever see a Simon on coverage be that, that vocal of something, but he did it. He reset, he had yeah. his putt. Um, and kind of just reminding people that that responsibility falls like a lot of on time was on you to do that. And some of the camera mm-hmm. crews, they're used to it. They should be used to it. <laughs> they're being, yeah, I, they're the being camera, thrown at. Camera guys are great. I, they're never a concern really. And if they are, they're so professional about just moving if you need them to. But yeah, it's the, it's just the, I don't even want to say uneducated fan. Cause that's not what it is. It's just, you get in your own little world when you're watching and sometimes you can mm-hmm. be like kind of stuck in between you were out of the way for one player, but the next player steps back up and we're all trying to play quick. And, you know, mm-hmm. you just, you have to have that maturity to just stop and say, Hey guys, scoot over a little bit for me. If I really need them to, if not, you got to be strong enough to block it out because there's so many pluses that come from you being on video coverage, that the couple of distractions that you have to face, like you just got to be mature enough to handle them. No, definitely. Well, and that kind of kind of helps us segue to this next question. Um, but there was uh, some talk about etiquette at the MPO caddies. Um, did you happen to experience anything like that at LVC or any other tournament you had? And I, if so, have you had it? Uh, handled it? <laughs> I didn't see anything. I didn't hear anything. See anything? I mean, everyone has yeah. to wear bibs now. <laughs> I, 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 what do you think of those? I thought the bibs were absolutely like. I love it. I was, I was laughing at them. I don't know. Yeah. Like we got watching Jeff Cords in a bib walk around. I was like, yeah. "Oh man, like big guy I... in a little coat." Hold on, <laughs> give me a second. Always oh, getting a bib. All right, guys, give us two yeah, seconds. Yeah, I can, Scott's still, I can away. still hear everything, but I'm off camera for a second. Yeah, he's still here where I put it away. Cage was going to trash talk you since you left, but <laughs> he does. No, All right, I there trash we go. Talk you, Cody. Whoa, I mean, so you said my face. I'll give you that. We had Vegas specific ones, yeah, for that tournament. But now we have the official disc golf pro tour ones that we're responsible to keep all season. So this will oh. be Jeff or whoever is with me, or if, if my wife Kaylee's with me, I guess she has to wear it if she's walking with me or whatever. But these are these are the ones. They're not white anymore. They're a lot higher quality. But Vegas wanted to do their own thing, so these are what we got now. Oh dang! But you're responsible so. for it. So if you end up losing it, then there's just like no caddy. Option for you? Know. <laughs> oh, there's kind of like, like, like golf wears. Those right. are always cool. Yeah, I was. That's what Champions Cup. Jeff has talked about this. We want the white jumpsuits. We are like 
30 <laughs> minutes from where the Masters is at. So if you ever watch the Masters, all the caddies at Augusta are in the full white jumpsuits. Champions Cup needs those. Dude, it looks legit. Like PDJ, if anyone yeah. from the PDJ happens to be listening to this, we need the full like white Masters jumpsuits for Champions Cup because we're basically in Augusta. And it's like a week <laughs> after the Masters. Like legitimately a week after the Masters. Like it's in April in Georgia. Like get us those jumpsuits for our caddies to wear there. <laughs> You can caddy a game and then you can go paint a house and you don't even have to change. Sure. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you jump wash it. yeah. <laughs> well, I did a story earlier this week and one of the questions that came in was what moment or event made you fall in love with disc golf? Oh man. Um, that's a tough question. It really I is. I was starting. Yeah, I've been playing forever. I started playing in 2001. So that was the first time I threw a disc was in 2001. And I was basically just walking up to a park in Coos Bay when I was living there with my dad and a couple of friends um, and not having a clue what we were doing and throwing discs. And I think it was just something that happened to be free and we could do it. Um, and the, the course Mingus park was right next to all our houses. It was kind of in like the central location of all of our friends in the summertime to just walk and meet everyone there. And then, uh, I think we had just all kind of, a lot of us fell in love with it. Then a lot of my buddies that played in high school still play like casually and that kind of stuff. And I was the one that kind of kept going. Um, but I think it was just like being able to go do it with friends and, we're all competitive, right? <laughs> My yeah. whole group of friends was super competitive. Um, so we'd go play and then it was summertime and we were dumb teenagers had nothing else to do. So we'd like walk down to the local store, Dairy Queen or whatever, get lunch, then walk back up and play another round. And, you know, it was just kind of like something that was easy for us to get to something that was really cheap to play. Um, and that we could do every day for no cost. And, you know, I think we just kind of, or I kind of, probably fell in love with playing and trying to be competitive in it somewhere between that moment where I started in high school. And then maybe like 2007 or 2008 and I started playing like some little winter series events or doubles events. And I was like, these guys are pretty cool. Like everyone's super nice. Let's keep traveling to this stuff. And just the camaraderie um, of like the whole Southern Oregon disc golf scene kind of just sucked you into wanting to be involved more and wanting to kind of just keep playing. So I think for me, there wasn't necessarily one moment. It was just kind of the relationships that were built early in the first five or six years of me playing that just got me to keep coming back. Did you um, ever do disc golf with like your boys and girls club? Did you ever transition that and like use that in your boys and girls club? Yeah, not, I mean, we did some like day camps and lessons and that kind of stuff over the years, but we always, one of the things that I always had, was a basket and putters out available to kids. And then at, when I moved up to Albany, we, the building that I was in had an indoor soccer field. So we would throw discs back and forth with the kids. And uh, one, uh, and Paige, you probably know him, my buddy DJ Harrington um, was one of my Boys and Girls Club kids in Coos Bay when he was growing up. Uh, and he started playing disc golf. And now he's like right at a thousand and, you know, has some pretty high upside, honestly. Um, he moved to Corvallis and then ended up working at the boys and girls club with me in Albany. So we would stand in the field and throw discs back and forth with each other and the kids would launch them too and whatever. So it wasn't like, I didn't run necessarily anything with the set curriculum, but every single day 
kids have had access to like have discs in their hands and putt as much as they want to. And just really lucky to have the facilities that I worked at too, because not every after school program has like the gyms and the indoor soccer field and that kind of stuff where it is safe to just launch discs around. But I mean, kids will smack each other in the head with them. If you're not like, all right, guys, we're on this side of the field. We're all throwing that way. And then we'll go pick them up and we'll all throw them back, but we're not doing this. Like, We know what well, happens with that. I've seen yeah. it. I've seen oh, yeah, it. me too. <laughs> I was going to say, just the importance of access right there, though, I think that's huge. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, I always think about my daughter. She's three and a half. But, like, when she plays by herself, I'll try to peek in. But it's like, oh, she's actually playing by herself. Like, let me not distract her. But it's like some of those kids that might not come to that camp and see and be like, oh, let me see be top how Scott throws and throw with him. But they'll see that. And on their own, they might get like, oh, let me grab these putters and get some putts in and then fall in love with it. Because that's the great thing about disc golf. It's you can be as antisocial as you want with it, but are as social as you want. And there's a place in this sport for you. Yeah, I mean, and for all ages, right? You can start at five years old and play up until, you know, as long as you're able to walk, basically. So you just need to find appropriate courses for Uh, different skill levels and different ages and most cities and towns are starting to see the value in it so you have the beginner courses to go along with some of the harder ones at this point Mm -hmm. um sorry there's a question about your bib are you able to add sponsors to it or does it have Uh, to be i don't know we're going to probably (laughs) good good i was gonna say like until they tell you not to right deck that out we have forgiveness after yeah, we have a screen printing setup at the resistance shop. So uh, I don't know if I'm going to embroider Jeff's face into the back of it or what we're going to do. <laughs> I don't even know where he's at currently. I don't hear just him. Be, so just like, start adding like, little things one at a time until you get in trouble. Just like one what? little thing and then a little thing here. And then just. Mm. So we talked about last night. And I didn't. Maybe I'm going to give it away because I don't know if we're actually going to do it or not. Um, Jeff says I'm not putting his face on this thing. <laughs> what am I putting on there then? Just put in quotations. I won't put your face on there. Yeah, sure. Like that. But we were talking last night about how funny it would be to have somebody like show up in your caddy bib because these things are like they're they're fine looking. Like they're pretty high quality, but they're kind of funny, like ridiculous in a way that they're being used the way they are. Yeah. Like Ben and I were talking, like you show up on lead card with the bib on. And then they announce it, and then you take the bib off and go throw, and then you put the bib back on after you throw, and then put your bag on, so you're acting like your own caddy, and you're just wearing the bib up the fairway. <laughs> we were talking about that. I think that's that's a plan that we might execute. So if uh, well, if you make Ben's, Rico lead card, I'll be I'll be yeah. expecting that because that'd be well worth yeah. it. <laughs> if Ben if Ben Callaway or I are on lead card, maybe. Maybe keep an eye out for that one because we were talking about right. last night. Caddy for one of your buddies. So you wear like his That's and then true. you could wear yours and just kind of mess around with Joe Mez. Like, oh, hey. Well, I tee off at 9.50 tomorrow, so I'm going to have plenty of time to be done. I'm the first NPO card off. Um, so half the field's not even going to have teed off by the time I'm done tomorrow for this <laughs> round one. And hopefully for round two, I'm not still on that 9.50 card. Yeah. <laughs> hopefully I'm around like one or two, like let's say two o'clock or something for round two. Let's shoot for top 20 or something. <laughs> well, like, I don't know. Like I said, you're definitely one of my top picks for Waco. I think, uh, like I said, like their style of golf translates really well over there. Um, but how are you feeling about Waco? Like going good. into it after your practice rounds? Yeah, good. Um, you don't know what you're going to get on this course. Like we know that at times the wind could blow, will blow. We're in Texas, like conditions change. 
real fast. But overall, I like the way the course sets up. Now, it doesn't mean I'm going to have a good week or a bad week. I just think the course is fun to play. Yeah. Um, they're, the lines in the woods are super tight, and if you're hitting them, it can seem real easy. And if you're not hitting them, it can seem like this is the hardest course in the world. Um, and then you get back out in the open, and it really depends on what the wind's doing when you're out in the open and how hard that closing set is. Basically, you've got holes one through uh, three that are in the open, and you would like to be like two under for those. And you go in the woods, and you just keep moving the thing forward. And if you throw good shots, you can park a lot of holes. And you know, if you're playing clean out there, those woods can seem semi easy. But if you're not, like, there's no scrambling out of those woods. If you're five feet in the woods, you, the best thing you can do is just pop back to the fairway because they are that thick. Um, there is no advancing it if you're not at least stretching out to the fairway. And then once you get out of the woods, uh, 12 and 13, or 13 and 14 are both birdieable holes. And then you get 15, which is a classic, like everyone's seen the 550 foot, what's now a part three that Jeremy won a couple playoffs on. Uh, that one is hold on for dear life. Kind of, excuse me, no matter what the wind's doing for me, I'm just not going to get it there. So I'm going to throw a forehand in the middle. If it's a headwind, though, that hole's so hard. It's a part four. Like, I don't care what they label it as. Then you'd like to birdie 16, no matter what the wind's doing. Like, it's an elevated basket, so it can get a little tricky. But if you have a tailwind, you can bend through one in circle two today in our practice round. I threw one to, like, 80. Now, those are really aggressive practice round shots. And probably in a, in a round, I'm going to try to put it, like, 110 out or something. It's like a 600-foot par four um, with not much in the way. And then 17 18 are both also hold on for dear life holes. Like, there's 17 so hard and then a bunch of limbs have kind of grown in on the tree that's on the second shot at this mm. point if you're in the perfect spot it's a i don't want to say standard forehand because you're still hanging out over water for like 300 feet and bringing it back in but then everyone knows 18 right it's a 460 foot hole that's carrying over water we can all get it there but if it's a headwind like oh, that upshot's so hard and that pin placement's so tough because you lay up on the left side we we're talking about that i can't on that left side, for some reason, I can't convince myself to throw it inside 30 feet. I throw it 30 feet long, and then I have to make that putt in the wind, putting straight at the water. So it's just like, mm. I just go for it and see what happens, basically. Because yeah. I'd rather be out of bounds on the right side by going over a wall and get the putt up and take the four than I would have to throw that stupid off shot from the left side that just kills me. <laughs> so we'll see. Like, I might play well. I might struggle. But I just think Waco is a fun course to play, and it's it's one of the stops that, like, it's a pretty fun town to be in. There's a lot of different cool food options and stuff when we're here. Um, and the course just, it's so nice to not have it be smash distance driver, smash distance driver, smash distance driver, and actually get to throw some like skilled shots to the woods. Yeah, no, and I think that's where like with Waco, I get excited about because I mean, I know Vegas is mixed reception for a lot of the fans. For me, I always love Vegas. Um, it always has a spot, a soft spot in my heart, but like Waco, I feel like, is that first kind of like, okay, we're back, we're back in action. There's going to be a lot of like, like factors in play. And this kind of really starts like the big push for a lot of people. And like, at least anyone can win. It's Waco. Anyone can like any, essentially any player in this MPO field and the FPO field are good enough that if you have a really good weekend, you can win out here. Vegas, that's not the case. Like if you don't throw a certain distance in Vegas, you're just dead in the water before Mm -hmm. the tournament even starts. But Waco, everyone's good enough you don't get into these tournaments if you're not so yeah the, there's a hundred and i don't know how many 120 guys and like 60 girls that are playing this tournament or whatever like every single one's got at least an outside chance to win no definitely well i do want to be mindful of our time and your time so we usually transition to some disclosing thoughts um before we kind of close out so 
Scott, is there any closing thoughts that you wanted to kind of kick us off with? Not really. I mean, thanks everyone for just one tuning in and listening to the podcast and then uh, two for, you know, supporting any of the things that we're doing in the Northwest, um, the different events that we're running and everything and just all the supportive messages like in Vegas and stuff that I was getting from everyone. I know you don't necessarily have time to like respond to every single person, but you read them all and they do mean something. So thank you to anyone that reached out for that. And then, uh, you know, sponsorship wise, thanks clash resistance and grip and just you know for keeping me on the road and letting me do this thing that we all think is kind of the dream in disc golf for a while so anyway thanks you guys for having me on and throwing some questions my way and everything yeah all right well josh you're speaking you want to perfect let's do it well first you know thanks scott for coming on it's been a blast to kind of hear what happened in vegas you know we're all watching you on on coverage and it's nice to know kind of was like what was happening for you um through the rounds because you had a killer, killer time, and it was really cool to see you play. Um, then to finish up, I wanted to pull it up here real quick. Um, I am going to be doing a giveaway on the pages. I'm going to do it on the bin page, grow it, and the jammers page. I brought this up a few podcasts ago. Uh, this company that that built a stand that will retract into your bag. It can go on almost all large bags. Um, but I'm like all about this and I want them to do well. So I'm going to actually give away um, a pre-order for one, which is like $150 value. Um, so stay tuned for information on how to enter for that. Um, it's going to be real cool. Let me pull this out. Those things look sweet. I've been seeing ads. Yeah. I, I haven't yeah. seen one in person yet, but I'm definitely interested in checking them out. So what a kind of a cool and unique product. Right. I just want, I just want them to do well. So anytime I, I just want to try to like promote them and I'm not sponsored by them or they didn't ask me to do this. I just want to, it's like a new innovation in disc golf. It's like, yeah. why not promote that? Yeah. So stay tuned guys for that big giveaway that Josh is doing. And I just like to see like the ads. Cause it's like, Hey, there's Milo. That's awesome. And he just <laughs> pop it up and, you know, BSF layout, whatever. So I always love to see that Cody. What are some of your closing thoughts? Um, Scott, thanks for coming on. Uh, I think it just, for one thing, having you here, it shows that like our, just the disc golf community in general, like how often do you see a professional in sports that you get a chance to talk to? Like you never really see like Mike Trout getting on here. It just kind of makes it cool that people, disc golfers of all, uh, skill levels can, you know, write in and talk to you and you can respond. So that's really cool. And especially how you say you read everyone's comments and stuff like that. Yeah. But I, I just think that shows how cool of a sport we have um and also just i like how you're talking about my final thought would just be uh think about how you can get a disc in a like a kid's hand um yeah i think it just shows how important kids will love anything you give them and you're saying all the way from age five to however old you can play if if you have some extra disc i keep extra disc in my cars uh if i just see a kid like hey what is that like here you want one you can have it. it it's really cool just to see them like kind of their face light up like this is something that's pretty cool they can do it it's cheap it keeps kids out of trouble it is something that gets them active they can do it with their family so think about ways that you can you know we always talk about growing the game it, it takes a couple discs in your car keep them with you keep them in your bag a disc you don't use could be an old they don't care they don't care if it's dx they don't care if it's premium they don't care if it glows they more care about the color it is and if it has a cool design that's all they care about so keep a cool looking disc. It could be anything. 
and really give it to a kid. They love it. I promise you, you will feel fantastic just giving a kid a disc, giving them access to a cool game that we all love. Share it. Yeah. I appreciate the Mike Trout comparison. I'm hoping I stay a little healthier than he does. But uh, <laughs> hey, he's playing for Team USA here soon. Yeah. All right, I can I can root for him for I don't know whatever the next two weeks, three weeks World Baseball Classic before uh, before Mariners season kicks off, and then the Angels again. You a Mariners fan? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's been a rough like you know I was at the last playoff game in 2001 before. Uh, before we went on a 21-year drought, and then last year obviously got back in the playoffs. So, yep, go Mariners. <laughs> All right, which transitions me to my closing thoughts. I think, I don't know, disc golf is so great because you have such unique stories that fill this sport. It's not just like, oh, I was born five years old and I was trained in a facility to be the best disc golfer in the world. It's like, you know, Boys and Girls Club, the director training to be a teacher in school decided to go professional disc golfer. And like, when do you see some of that? Like, and then eventually like that might go away, like 10, 15 years, you might see some of those like bred to be a disc golfer. Um, but right now it's still in that like organic. So being able to take the time, put aside some of like people's perceptions and get to know people and get to know some of the people that are dominating the field. Like when you said DJ Harrington, I had no idea he was one of your boys and girls club and watching how closely He's supporting not only you, Resistance, um, but what he is doing where you talk about untapped potential, he definitely has that and seeing that yeah. in real-time growth based off of, you know, your your history in the sport, that's that's very real. And so for me, yeah, definitely, Cody, like you hit the nail on the head of like giving some effort to some of these kids because they legitimately have a chance at making this. Baseball, basketball, it's very small percentage chance. Not that they don't have that chance, it's just very small, but disc golf, it's a little bit higher. Um and having that support system in, in place is, is huge. So with that, I do want to transition to uh, some of our, our show sponsors and kind of highlight uh, one of them. You want to pull it up, Josh? Yeah, got it right here. So we have a couple different sponsors, but we try to highlight one a week. Just that way I'm not fumbling all of them. You can kind of see them in the background. But Terminal Velocity this week is who we're highlighting. They just released a new mold today, uh, the Micah Cervini's. Um, Beautiful art. It's also one of my triumph discs for state championships from last year. Uh, super flippy. Definitely amazing rollers. Um, the domey ones I hear are a little bit more overstable. So if you guys have a chance, go hit up Jammers in the Rough. Or not Jammers, but Terminal Velocity and uh, support one of ours who support us. So with that, guys, thank you so much, Scott for taking the time to come out here. It was an absolute blast getting to talk with you and pick your mind. Um, Scott has three lovely sponsors, Clash, Resistance, and Grip. And if you're feeling extra thankful for this show, go show them some love. I'm personally looking forward to any Withers disc on Clash because I do like the plastic feel. And if I can get a Withers berry, I'm definitely all in. So they're coming with that. Just, just, yeah. <laughs> Soon, hopefully. So, All right. I don't know. I don't know what mold specifically, but we're definitely going to, we're going to have some stuff coming out here pretty quick. Oh, I love that. See, I'm, I'm here for that. I mean, as you can tell, I just have a lot of, uh, a lot of assortment of discs that I just, I fell in love with trying them rather than uh, throwing them good. So with that guys, thank you all for taking the time and supporting us with that. Like follow share um, Scott, not us go sh- Go show some Scott some love. So with that, guys, keep jamming it in the rough. I'll see you all next week.
Peace.